Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Raw Talk Live COVID Decoded series. This year, we're making the most of the new normal and bringing you a virtual discussion series all about the COVID-19 pandemic. Over eight weeks this summer, we live streamed our discussions with experts on COVID-19 and its impact on science and our society. The focus of this COVID Decoded discussion is COVID-19 testing, its development, reliability, and availability in Canada. Thamia chats with Dr. Kozro Adeli, Head of Clinical Biochemistry at the Hospital for Sick Children, and Mary Catherine Bond, PhD candidate in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology at the University of Toronto. But before we jump into the discussion, we wish to acknowledge this land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Okay, let's get into it. I'd like to welcome both of our guests, Dr. Adeli and Mary Catherine. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, how are you doing? Thank you for having us. Uh, we're here to, uh, happy to here to talk to our uh, colleagues and students at the university. Great, thank you. Uh, I thought I'd start out by asking both of you how you got involved in COVID-19 research. Obviously, this was not your main focus prior to the pandemic. So can you tell us a little bit about how that transition happened and when did you start kind of shifting your focus? So I thought we could start with you, Dr. Adeli. Sure. Uh, well, as a lab director here, I'm not only a researcher, but I'm also a director of the clinical lab where we do testing on patients for many different medical reasons or medical concerns. And of course, this new pandemic is a major medical concern and therefore our, t our attention quickly focused. Uh, we have a microbiology division here that uh, has begun testing for the virus directly using the RNA assay that we will talk about. And then more recently, we have started testing for the antibodies um, uh, against the virus and the viral proteins. And we'll talk about that as well. So it was a natural sort of transition because this is really one of the mandates of our lab. Uh, we're sort of at the interface between a research lab and a clinical lab. So it made a, a lot of sense for us to be part of the investigation. Great. And Mary Catherine, how about for you uh, as a grad student, you're uh, research project, I think, I would imagine, kind of shifted entirely. What was that like for you? So we have a lot of projects currently ongoing, so my main project hasn't really changed, but I think during this pandemic we've all kind of focused our efforts on what's most important here, and so I was very lucky to be under the supervision of Dr. Adeli and to have the opportunity to work on some of the great work we're doing here at SickKids. Great. And Dr. Adeli, you're the president of the International Federation of Clinical Chemistry, the IFCC. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the IFCC is, what it usually does, and um, how its role, what its role has been during the pandemic. Certainly, uh, IFCC, International Federation of Clinical Chemistry and Laboratory Medicine, the long name. Um, this uh, is an umbrella organization, includes 93 member countries, Canada being one of them, uh, and uh, has uh, actually includes uh, including scientists and some of the technical people involved more than 45,000 scientists and, and, and 
lab specialists are part of this organization. So it's quite a large organization, and it's based, uh, the office is based in Milan, Italy, and I have been part of the organization for many years for at different levels as a chair of different committees and divisions, and now, as of this year, have become the president. And I have my work cut out for me because it's a huge organization. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of traveling. But of course, this year, in one way, it's uh, uh, the COVID uh, has prevented us from traveling, which has actually helped me focus on some of the work here. But yeah, it's a it's an organization. The mandate is to try to uh, 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 support lab medicine and lab testing around the world. And therefore, IFCC has recently become quite involved in the COVID-19 crisis and has uh, has been reformed a task force. And this task force uh, on COVID-19 has been uh, publishing a number of papers and reviews. And currently, with Mary's uh, help and a number of colleagues in Australia, in Italy, in US and elsewhere, we are writing a, a guideline document. This, this is a series of guidelines telling labs, particularly in developing countries that have fewer resources, how to uh, be uh, monitoring the virus, the infection, uh, as well as monitoring the, uh, the antibodies against the virus and basically monitoring their population. So the guidelines are meant to assist particularly developing countries. Right. So it's kind of like um, kind of compiling all of these resources and making them available to everyone. We actually have done that. Guti, you mentioned that because we have actually done that early on. We, at the end of March, very early on, we developed a website on the IFC. It's a web page on the IFCC website that actually has all the resources, the latest publications, uh, has links to many good webinars. It has a lot of good information. And actually, Mary here has been a major part of that. She's really helped me put that together. And it's helping uh, many countries, and we have gotten a lot of good feedback from people around the world telling us how useful that, that, that site, the resource is. So it's an online resource. You can just simply Google it, IFCC COVID-19, uh, um, and you will get the, the website. And it's, um, it's, uh, it has a lot of good information, and we update it either weekly or bi-weekly, uh, it's updated. So the latest update is actually, actually as of this recent uh, past Monday. So uh, yeah, I w welcome uh, students and colleagues to go on to this website and look at some of the latest data on uh, COVID-19, not just testing, on epidemiology, on this, on the vaccine development, and so on and so on. That's great. Yeah, it's important to make sure everyone is on the same page on a global scale because things do change so quickly. Um, I thought uh, I would next ask about the um, the two main types of tests. Um, so most people, when they imagine testing, they picture the nasal swab. That's to detect if you're infected. There's also the antibody test. So um, Mary Catherine, maybe you can start us off um, kind of explaining what these two tests are, um, how they work, what you're looking for when you're doing these tests. Sure, yeah, so exactly. There are two main tests um, that have been of use in the COVID-19 pandemic, and the first being molecular testing, and the second serological testing, or more commonly known as antibody testing. So with the molecular testing, you're really looking for current infection. And this type of testing has really been our eyes and our ears in this pandemic, in terms of contact tracing, initial diagnosis, as well as for rationalizing the control measures that public health has put in place in different countries over this period. 
period. So as you mentioned, this type of test normally is a nasopharyngeal sample. So a swab goes up the nose to collect a material, which then gets shipped back to the lab. There are some other specimens that can be used, but that's definitely the most common. And the type of test, the methodology behind it is a nucleic acid amplification test. And most commonly that's RT-PCR. So both the Centers for Disease Control in the States, as well as the World Health Organization, their developed tests for molecular SARS-CoV-2 RNA are all RT-PCR based. So that kind of describes the general methodology behind those types of tests. So with those types of tests, you're kind of looking for the genetic material of the virus itself? Exactly. You're looking for the virus itself, the viral RNA. In contrast, when you're looking at antibody testing, we're looking for the antibodies that mount a response to the virus. And this is a most commonly blood-based test. So this can include serum, plasma, and whole blood. And we've seen a large variety of assay techniques that have been developed to detect these antibodies. One being lateral flow assay, similar to a pregnancy test that can be used at the point of care. And there are others more commonly ELISA's or chemiluminescent assays that are able to detect detect antibodies against this virus on mainframe analyzers that are most commonly available in clinical hospitals across the world. Also, these tests sometimes detect total antibody or they can detect immunoglobulin isotypes, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit later, but that kind of gives a broad overview of the two test types. Great. So one kind of tells you if you're currently infected, and then with the antibody test, you'll know if you've been infected in the past, I guess? Yes. So are there certain situations where you would use one test versus the other? Definitely. So I think the most commonly used test right now is, of course, the PCR test, the molecular test for the viral RNA to detect current infection. So that would be, for example, if someone was presenting with some clinical symptoms that were similar to COVID and presented to an emergency department or a hospital, they could get tested in order to see if they were actively infected. On the other hand, um, you could also use this for screening. So for individuals who are about to have surgery or are about to enter perhaps a long-term care facility, you can determine if there is an active infection there. However, for antibody testing, you're mainly, as you said, looking for past infection. And this can be anywhere from 14 days post-symptom onset and more. So I think we'll get into the timing a little bit later, but I think it's important to remember too that if you're antibody positive, that doesn't necessarily mean that your um, viral test may be negative. So you can be positive for both tests. And therefore, if you detect antibodies, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're totally past the infection. So I think that's something important to remember. And so uh, actually kind of going back to the timing of the test, maybe this is a good point to talk about that. Um, you mentioned that uh, with the uh, molecular test, it's to detect if there's a current infection. So is there a period like maybe is it best, uh, most likely to be detected when you have symptoms or just before you have symptoms or anything like that? Sure. So there's been a lot of literature, and I think you guys have a graphic, so I'm not sure if you'll bring it up now, but there's a lot of literature about the timing of both viral response and also the antibody response. So in terms of the molecular detection, it is estimated that rather around the onset of symptoms is when you get that positivity. So before you have symptoms or even around the time you get symptoms, you can be negative, and this would what we would be call an false negative. However, um, this just means that your viral load is so low that the test is not able to detect it. When you mount this response or you have this viral RNA circulating, we see that around 
14 days post-symptom onset, you start to see negativity in the tests. And this will vary, vary depending on patient type. Some patients have really sustained viral load for many weeks after post-symptom onset. Others, it's around 14 days. So it really depends on the population of use, but definitely for molecular testing, your window is zero to 14 days post-symptom onset. And then for the uh, serological or antibody test, how does that work? So there's a lot of controversy or just a lot of opinions right now about exactly when we're able to detect the antibodies in the serum, and partially that's due to the test type and what it's testing for. So there are various um, immunoglobulins that are released to combat this virus. So this can include IgG or isoglobulin G, immunoglobulin M and IgA, and different Health Canada approved tests do detect these different immunoglobulins. Some detect IgG, others detect IgM, and exactly how these correlate to each other hasn't been well elucidated, although we're starting to get there. So some people say that IgM will increase first, followed by IgG. Others say that they're expressed concomitantly, but definitely you wouldn't see it likely before 14 days post-symptom onset and even after that. So 17 to 21 days is actually what a lot of manufacturers recommend the assay works best at. However, it's also important to note that we don't really know for how long these antibodies are able to be detected in the serum. So it could be if you're 60 days past your infection, you may not be able to see those antibodies. And so this, again, these antibody tests, they may not necessarily tell you if you're uh, protected from reinfection again either because you just you might lose them after some time I guess also because they tell you nothing about the immunity status so the tests that are currently available at Health Canada they're not testing for whether these antibodies can be used to combat the virus just that you have them so that would require a more specialized tests which what we would call a neutralization assay and those tests aren't really broadly available right now. So just because you have, or let's say you test positive for these antibodies, doesn't mean that you are immune to pr uh, prior or previous infection. Okay, great. Yeah, if I could add to that, that basically the serology test is telling you about prior exposure to the virus. But because it's not quantitative, you're not measuring the amount of the antibody, you're also not necessarily measuring antibodies that can be neutralizing, which means antibodies that can prevent reinfection. So those require more elaborate testing. They are, those tests are not available. They're just not routinely done. Okay. Um, and kind of uh, going back to both types of tests, so there's limitations uh, with both. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Mary Catherine, you can go ahead. Sure. Um, so in terms of the limitations for the molecular tests, they've been shown to be very specific. So the primer and probe sets that have been designed really minimize the uh, false positive rate. So you're not really too concerned about false positives. You'd be more concerned about false negatives. And this could be due um, to when you test them. So as we said, the diagnostic window, if you test them too soon or test them after, you won't be able to see this positivity. Um, however, there are some other issues, what we call pre-analytical issues, which is something that happens before you even test the specimen. So how is the specimen collected? How is it transported? And how is it dealt with? So if you have an improper collection, you're likely to get a false negative. And this is one of the concerns with um, at-home 
self collections that are currently kind of circulating to improve test accessibility. So that's just something to keep in mind in terms of the limitations with um, molecular testing is the samples a little bit more difficult to get. So the at home collection may be not as feasible. For antibody testing, I would say our knowledge is a little bit limited right now in terms of, as we said, the dynamic response in terms of timing, but also in the different populations. So currently there are about five or six um, serological assays that Health Canada has approved, so only a handful. And a lot of them have used very severe patients or samples from very severe patients in order to quantify the performance of the tests. And if we're to use them for seroprevalence studies or epidemiological studies, we just need to keep in mind that we don't have a lot of performance characteristics in more asymptomatic populations, and therefore we may not know how the test will perform in that scenario. So I think it's just important to keep what we know and what we don't know in mind, especially for serology testing. Okay. And so with so it sounds like with the serology testing, maybe the concern is how sensitive is it, it is. Is that correct? Yeah, we want to look at sensitivity. There is a possibility that you could be infected, and if you're asymptomatic, you may not have a strong enough antibody response to be able to detect it. So this could really complicate the interpretation of any seroprevalence studies. Um, also, you are concerned about false positives or specificity. So most of the tests have been shown to be very specific, but there's always a chance that it could cross-react with other circulating coronaviruses or other respiratory infections. And that's definitely something to keep in mind as we journey into a flu season as and well. And I guess especially for the the serology test, you really do want to avoid false positives because then people might go around thinking that they've been infected before, so it's not something to worry about anymore. Definitely. That's right. And I, and to add to that, it, uh, positivity and false positives can go up as the prevalence of the infection in the population goes down. So that's why it's, uh, when you go and look at a population that has very low prevalence of the infection, there is a high, higher likelihood of having a false, a more false positives. So there is this uh, relationship. So it tend, uh, so that's why, uh, as Mary mentioned, uh, the, 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 these new uh, serology tests need to be further validated in those populations with lower prevalence of the uh, infection. So on the topic of validation, I think uh, that's really an important part of the development and availability of these tests to make sure that they're actually sensitive and specific enough. Um, what is the process like for getting these diagnostic tests approved in Canada? And um, how has that changed because there was this um, urgent need for this, at, especially at the start of the pandemic? Um, Dr. Adeli, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Now, typically when a manufacturer or a company uh, or even a nonprofit organization, a university comes up with a test and they want Health Canada approval. Health Canada approval is required when you need, you are going to use that test for human testing. Now, if, it, if you're doing research in the lab on animals, it's not necessary. But if you're doing it, uh, even if you're doing a research project, uh, you need to ensure the test is uh, it, on humans, uh, whether it's children or adults. You need to have approval, and the study needs to be approved, and the testing needs to be approved. Manufacturers who develop these tests uh, need to uh, provide all sorts of documentation to Health Canada to show that the performance of the assay is 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 uh, appropriately uh, good, and that the, the test performance sort of uh, 
is supported by evidence they provide. Now, Health Canada usually doesn't do its own testing, but they do uh, usually monitor the... Uh, so they don't do testing to verify the manufacturer claims. Although, in some cases, F, uh, in the U.S., FDA has done that, has had F, uh, third parties do testing to confirm the validation of the test. But in Canada, as far as I, I am aware, testing is not done uh, independently. But they do look at documentation. They ask a lot of questions. And if they feel that the assay uh, performance is, is good and it's supported by good evidence, then uh, they give approval. Uh, now, uh, when the approval is given, there's a still more validation likely needed on, on the ground in different populations, in different labs. But typically, that's essential to be able to do testing either for a research project on humans or use it for patient testing. And so um, how has the process changed, I guess, because of the pandemic? Is it something like, was is it just faster or are there fewer requirements for a test to be approved? Well, Health Canada and FDA, as you know, have moved very quickly to try to approve some of these tests, particularly in the U.S. They were quite fast to try to approve tests uh, using this emergency uh, use uh, uh, authorization. And it's uh, it was actually uh, too rushed initially, so much so that some of those uh, uh, approvals were withdrawn later uh, because assays were approved that really were poor quality. What they uh, did in that case, they, they asked for a very limited amount of data. The limited amount of data was sufficient. In some cases, they didn't even, there wasn't much data uh, even uh, in terms of validation data, but they still agreed because of the, I guess, the, the emergency uh, situation and the crisis and the pandemic issue, they wanted a test to be available. But many of those tests, particularly from some of the overseas countries, uh, were of very poor quality and they were later actually, uh, uh, those uh, emergency use uh, approvals were removed, uh, authorizations were removed and reversed. But uh, many of the newer assays, I have to say, in the, uh, developed in the last couple of months are of much better quality. They have gone through the right approval process. It's still, uh, uh, they are expedited, uh, expedited in the sense that they, it usually, usually takes months to get these approvals, but these days within a couple of weeks, usually they can get, sometimes even shorter, they can get the approval if they have the right documentation, the right data, uh, they do need to show data, validation data, uh, in terms of sensitivity, specificity, precision, accuracy, linearity for quantitative assays, and, and so on and so on. So there are quite a few parameters that you need to uh, establish uh, and, and show good performance on before uh, you can convince some uh, a body like Health Canada to approve it. That's uh, so. Yeah, I guess especially at the start, um, there there was this need to kind of balance accuracy and sensitivity and things like that, but also this urgent, immediate need. And so I guess that's where some of that uh, happened, where these tests had to be removed again from the market. Exactly. Yeah. But I have to say the current, particularly the PC molecular tests, are of fairly good quality. The ones that were developed early on and were not performing well have largely been withdrawn from the market 
but the current assays are largely quite good. Actually, a lot of tests have been homemade. I have to say for molecular testing, many, uh, even our hospital here at SICK has developed our microbiology division, develop its own PCR test. The good thing about PCR tests is you can actually develop an assay fairly quickly using a primer that you can synthesize. Uh, and so it's, uh, it, it was done, and, but it was uh, further validated and, they, uh, and then, um, uh, then used uh, for clinical testing. And they, it's been compared to some approved tests, and they, 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 they have performed very well. But so many groups, uh, hospitals and others, have uh, moved very rapidly back in March, April to develop these tests. And so compared to back in March and April, now we're at a stage, I think, especially in Canada, where tests are uh, more widely available and more people can get tested. Um, how has this uh, changed um, the spread of the pandemic? Maybe, Mary Catherine, you can start. Sure. I think the consensus among laboratory professionals has been test, 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 test as much as possible, especially for molecular testing, not only in people who present with symptoms, but also, as we alluded to earlier, for screening purposes, when, you know, someone may be undergoing surgery where there's a risk of aerosolization or if they're going in to an area with more at-risk populations. So I think the availability of testing, particularly molecular testing, has been really key in guiding public health decisions in terms of exposure um, in many different populations. I think antibody testing hasn't yet got there in terms of its use in public health, but I think in the next few months, we'll definitely see these serological assays playing a much greater role. Uh, Dr. Adeli, did you have anything to add to that? No, I think that was good. Uh, uh, Mary is on top of the literature in this area quite well. So, would you uh, would you say that it makes sense? Um, would like would would you only want to get tested if you're feeling symptoms, or should anyone and everyone just be getting tested yeah, just for? Probably, uh, yeah, I agree. Of course, anyone with symptoms, but also high risk populations, and I think that's been the strategy in many countries, including in Ontario. So highest risk populations would be hospital workers, would be, um, uh, you know, long-term care uh, residents and workers. Uh, and uh, if you can afford it, might as well screen everybody. But that's not uh, easy to do and, and very expensive and very difficult to administer. I don't know if you heard, but uh, uh, a couple of a month ago or so, uh, China uh, uh, decided to... Um, to screen the entire population of Wuhan, which were over 10 million people. And they did it in like 10 days or a week or whatever. But not everybody can do that. It's very difficult uh, to, to, to test. It's very expensive. The supplies have been quite limited as well. Just getting uh, hold of some of the uh, supplies, the kits to do the testing uh, has been a major bottleneck. So definitely you need to, uh, to prioritize. Of course, if you have more supply and resources, you can do more testing. But certainly uh, those with symptoms, those with high risk. And, uh, but because of the low prevalence now in the Canadian population, perhaps, again, the focus should be on the specific areas and groups. Um, uh, it is ideal to screen everybody. The problem is that even if you screen everybody today, uh, uh, tomorrow that picture may change uh, because some people may get infected tomorrow 
they were maybe negative today, but they may be positive tomorrow. So therefore, screening everybody at one time point may not be that helpful necessarily. Right. So you need to be kind of strategic about maybe how frequently and who exactly is being tested. Exactly. Um, so even uh, with this more widespread availability of testing, it's possible that maybe those that need to get tested, certain populations that are high risk, um, they may not have easy access to this testing. Um, so what are some options that are um, around right now to make testing more accessible to different uh, populations? Well, I think one area that has been explored, but there have been quite a few challenges, is called point-of-care testing, where you do testing on, uh, uh, you know, at the point-of-care. That means on these small devices uh, that can, where you could do the sample and, and get the result within minutes, uh, sometimes just 20 minutes. Abbott actually came up with one of those tests early on. And as you know, there have been a number of other companies have come up with similar types of a rapid test, but the problem has been performance. The performance has been questioned in many cases. Uh, there was a, actually an Ottawa company that came up with a test like that, as you may recall, back in uh, April, and it was withdrawn a month later because uh, there were performance issues. So therefore, uh, there have been a lot of challenges, but I think that's where uh, you could reach the remote co co communities uh, using these point-of-care assays, uh, which you do not need a lot of, uh, you know, uh, sophisticated equipment. These are small devices where you could just get a sample and quickly get a test done. Uh, this is actually done in other areas, um, uh, other for other medical uh, tests. Point-of-care testing is becoming more, it's actually one of the biggest uh, um, areas of growth in, in healthcare is point-of-care testing. So that also can be applied for infectious disease like COVID-19. Uh, therefore, that's I think is potentially could be a way of the future, but the, the technology is still not quite there. And I imagine, so these are different than the molecular tests that would actually happen in a lab. So that's, so they're maybe not as accurate yet, but it's. So there actually, there were molecular point of care tests, but again, the performance was an, an, was an issue. Similar with serology tests, you, there are some some um, point of care tests coming and are being uh, verified, validated, but there are still issues and I think the, the performance is not as good as the lab tests. Okay, and uh, Mary Catherine, you also mentioned earlier the idea of at-home testing, where I guess you kind of collect a sample at home and then send it off to a lab. And like you said, there are issues with that as well, but that could be another option. Yeah, I think the FDA was the first to approve a self-collection kit that could be distributed to, you know, everyone's homes to be sent to a lab to do the testing. But there have been concerns and many um, laboratory bodies have come out with statements saying that there is concern regarding self-collection and how the sample is collected without the proper education could lead to uh, false negatives and then improper clinical decision making. So there, I guess there is still some work to be done in that regard of making tests more easily accessible to most people. Um, kind of going forward, uh, what role do you think testing will have in general, just epidemiological surveillance and recovery? Um, we can start with you, Mary Catherine. 
Sure. So I think in terms of epidemiological surveillance, I think serology testing is estimated to play a huge role to detect past infection in a cumulative fashion. So I think as we continue to learn more about these tests and how we can interpret them, um, blood testing widely um, for antibody positivity could be very useful. And I think we'll continually have to test individuals for molecular tests as well, as Dr. Delhi was saying, maybe take a more concerted approach identifying areas of higher risk. But I think what's really true in this pandemic and what's been at the core of the, the past six months is the role of the laboratory and how important it is in guiding decisions, both clinical and public health, um, throughout this crisis. So I think that's one thing that cannot be understated in terms of importance. And I think it's going to be especially important going forward. I think Toronto will be allowed to enter stage three starting tomorrow, I think. So, um, Going forward, I think, uh, is there, do you think there should be a change in testing strategy? For example, if school, once schools start opening up, is that maybe a population where you might want more frequent testing or something? Yeah, I think um, certainly this is a time to think about how you want to monitor the population. And um, there are a number of ways. Uh, what I find particularly potentially exciting is the new antigen tests that are coming. Yeah, uh, uh, there are some that are developing tests, uh, antigen tests, meaning uh, uh, viral proteins that are being detected of the viral RNA, the viral protein. Perhaps it might be easier to monitor those uh, in the population if the assays are well developed and established and, and validated and they, they work actually sensitive enough to pick up uh, perhaps one way uh, to um, address this uh, issue instead of doing molecular testing, which is really difficult to, uh, to uh, and it's difficult to collect these samples uh, um, from the population, it's uh, rather invasive. Whereas you, with a, a simple finger prick, you could give a, one drop of blood and be screened for the antigen. Although, although currently the antibody assays can be also done on blood, on serum, uh, but um, I, I think this uh, antigen test that seem to be coming on the market might be quite helpful in that arena. But going back to the serology test, I think certainly uh, when uh, uh, schools open and when the people go back, more people go back to work, when restaurants open and the bars open, I think you need to sc screen more and survey more. And, and so using serology testing could certainly be helpful and I, uh, I want to mention that a number of groups are starting to do that in Canada, where they're starting to do survey of the, the local population using these antibody tests. The antigen tests are not there yet, uh, but the antibody tests are being done. And we have started a project on children. And uh, we are doing uh, testing right now of tests, uh, samples collected from hospital patients as well as from the community, children in the community. Uh, but uh, we like to continue that in the fall, ideally. We're right now planning and discussing it. Uh, but I, we're hoping to monitor the pediatric population uh, in the greater Toronto area. And that could perhaps help with, uh, with the, uh, you know, the public health decisions that will be made. Um, uh, so I think same same thing should be done in, with adults, and I think there is already some work being done in that area. There is this immunity task force, part of public health, 
that pursuing that in adults largely, and we're trying to do something similar in the children population. It's interesting you brought up the immunity task force. So one of our upcoming episodes will actually be talking to Dr. David Naylor, who's part of that. So we'll uh, talk a little bit more about that in that episode too. Um, but also kind of speaking about immunity, um, we, as you mentioned earlier, the ser serology tests don't necessarily tell you if you're immune. They just tell you if you have antibodies against the virus. Um, are there tests that are um, in development that might be useful in that sense, especially maybe as vaccines are developed and people get vaccinated? Uh, we need to know if people are actually protected. Um, are there tests available for that? There are tests available, and Mary can give you more detail, but there are two types of tests that could be helpful in that sense, in terms of determining whether there is immunity, potential immunity. Um, one is a so-called quantitative test, because the current zoology tests just are qualitative. They just indicate whether you're positive or negative. Whereas the, new, the newer test will actually measure the amount of antibody. And if you have, have a high titer of antibody, that could potentially suggest uh, potential immunity or resistance to reinfection or infection. But the, uh, the second uh, type of test, and Mary mentioned that, uh, are, is called neutralization test. But those are a bit more involved. What they do is they use a cell culture and they take sample from the patient and then they test whether it can uh, neutralize the virus in a cell culture cis model. And so that that is, of course, an involved test and it, it takes time and that's why it's not readily available. But those tests are available uh, currently in Canada, U.S., and some people are doing them. They're just uh, hard to do in a, a sort of a larger scale. Mary, do you want to add to that? Sure. I think another option, too, that people are investigating is looking at the different domains of the antibodies and seeing if any of them correlate to immunity and then designing antibody tests to specifically detect that domain. So there's the spike protein and other proteins, and people have hypotheses about which ones may be beneficial towards immunity. So if they can pin that down, you can develop a test that could be an indirect um, quantitation of immunity. But definitely the neutralization assays are available, but as Dr. Adeli said, they're just not um, very feasible to do. Right. And I guess um, moving forward, if these uh, t types of uh, neutralizing tests can be um, done on a large scale, that would be very useful to know if people are immune. Definitely. And uh, we're approaching the end uh, of our time, and just before we go to audience questions. Uh, so, uh, um, before we get into that, I just wanted to ask, um, what do you think are some uh, developments that uh, are happening right now or developments that you think uh, you would like to see that you think would really be important in uh, limiting the spread of COVID-19 and uh, how we deal with the pandemic? Well, I think I mentioned quick, uh, the, this antigen testing seems to be potentially promising. Perhaps it could uh, replace the PCR test. It, it can be done very quickly and measured very rapidly. Potentially even point of care testing of antigen can be very helpful uh, where you could get tested, test done within minutes. And that could be helpful, especially when you're trying to follow up and do a, a surveillance and uh, follow up of those who turn out to be positive. So, because as you know, timing is everything. Like in the U.S. right now, they've 
they do testing, but they reporting uh, the results a week later. Well, that's not very useful because that that person who has been uh, positive has been contacting hundreds of people during that week, and that so you've sort of so if you can do rapid testing uh, using something like a ant uh, antigen, that could be useful. I see that as a potential. Uh, uh, to another tool that could be very useful. Uh, Mary, do you want to comment as well? Sure. I definitely think the development of point-of-care assays and their refinement will be an interesting evolution in the next few months. But I also think as we continue to evolve in this pandemic, the roles of these tests will likely change, and it will be interesting to see how we adapt these tests to the given circumstance. And also, especially with serology, we just need more information about their characteristics. So I'm hoping that in the next few months, there's some great research going on, and we'll be able to better characterize the performance of these tests and then better apply them to the current needs. And yeah. well, and one more uh, just point that I wanted to add is another potential, I think, uh, technology that could be useful is measuring multiple types of antibodies because there are different viral proteins. And if you show, for example, evidence that you have antibodies against uh, certain proteins, uh, and a combination of those antibodies are, is protective uh, for, uh, for reinfection, then that could be a nice predictor of immunity. And so, if, uh, so rather than looking at one antibody, looking at a battery of antibodies and, and panel of antibodies in a subject, in a patient, that could be very useful in assessing in potential immunity. So I think that's another thing I have noticed people are starting to look at. Look at the antibodies against more than one viral protein uh, to show the uh, potential uh, indication of uh, immunity. Mm -hmm. And like you said, with all these tests, in addition to accuracy, I guess the turnaround time is really important in order for things like contract, contact tracing to be very effective so that it, it's actually useful. Um, so I think we can go on to some audience questions now. We have a few. Uh, the first question is with regard to opening up schools again. So the question is, um, Ontario recently unveiled plans to reopen schools in September. What implications would that have on testing and are there specific considerations for testing children? So Dr. Adele, you mentioned you're kind of starting to look into that. Could you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, we're actually currently testing thousands of samples we have from children. Uh, we have been doing a project for years uh, not related to COVID uh, called the Caliper Project, uh, where uh, we have a website called caliper.org, caliperproject.org, for those who are interested in reading more. But we've been going to schools for the last few years and collecting samples, and we have actually 12,000 children in the GTA who have um, participated over the years. These are healthy children, and we have many of these samples. So. Uh, and so especially samples collected in January, February, uh, and before that in the fall, and then samples collected from patients during this year uh, as they come to the hospitals. We, we're currently testing those samples. And so determine what's happen what, what was happening in the children in, during the, the crisis, just before the crisis and right uh, during the crisis. And we're now hoping to start uh, going back to the community and monitoring children during the school year. And that, uh, that is the current uh, plan. Uh, we're discussing the logistics of that, um, but uh, because of the, uh, the various uh, um, health measures, uh, it might be difficult to 
to go into the community and collect samples. Well, we're trying to figure out how that could be done. But uh, certainly, uh, we do plan to, to survey the pediatric population, and I know there are similar plans for adults. And um, so there's another question that kind of came in about um, tracking the pathogen itself. So uh, we know that the virus mutates. And with the molecular tests, um, are we able to get information about um, maybe where different outbreaks may have started just based on the strain of the virus? And um, also, like, as the virus mutates, do these tests kind of have to be adapted to keep up with them almost? Um, Mary Catherine, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So very recently, there have been a few papers that have shown that the virus does actually mutate and it can cause false negatives in the tests that have already been established. So that's definitely a consideration that needs to be kept in mind. I'm not sure about tracing, but especially for the performance of the test, as the virus evolves and continues to mutate, we may need to recalibrate or redesign primers and probes. And this could be done on a location-specific um, design if it, it mutates in certain regions and certain not. Is it something that you kind of need to keep up with? Is it like something that needs to be updated very frequently or? So there have been like relatively few reports of mutations. So I think everyone's just trying to understand um, the significance of it and how that imp impacts testing. But a lot of these tests don't just target one area of the genome, it targets many. So hopefully that will drown out a little bit of the mutation noise. Yeah, and typically uh, when people design such molecular tests, they try to use primers against regions that tend to be less prone to mutations. Usually in every living, uh, actually uh, viruses actually, by the way, are not living organisms. Um, they're only living once they are, they infect someone. But um, anyway, a virus or a bacterial gene or whatever, usually uh, when you target for testing, you try to go after the regions that tend to be more stable. And so I think for that reason, many of these tests are still good, even if the virus has mutated somewhere else, they're still detectable. But there are exceptions where the primers might be against a regions that have mutated, in which case you need to redesign, as Mary mentioned. And I guess there's also, um, I don't know if it's true for SARS-CoV-2 in particular, but maybe there are clinically relevant mutations, and I guess perhaps tests could also be useful in that sense to tell you maybe how the disease might progress based on which version of the virus you have? Well, it's been suggested, for example, that the virus that uh, ended up in Italy, for example, was more lethal than the virus that, for example, was originally in Wuhan. And so I don't know if that's true, but uh, there, there is some evidence that that might be the case, that the virus had changed, maybe became more infective, as well as it was uh, more uh, lethal and uh, more severe, giving you more severe medical, uh, like uh, um, severe disease. Therefore, uh, it's still really difficult to judge, but uh, I think there is clearly some differences in the strains of the virus, uh, viral uh, um, uh, genomes that are detected in different parts of the world. Uh, I don't know if there is good evidence uh, uh, for how they link to severity of disease or infection rate. Um, uh, probably still uh, needs more and more research. 
And one uh, more question is about testing in airports. So some airports have started to test passengers upon arrival and others don't. Um, and I guess with easing travel restrictions, should mandatory testing at ports of entry be something that more countries adopt? And also I imagine as point of care testing changes and the antigen tests, like you mentioned, if those become more widely available, this might be more feasible. But do you think it's something that's necessary? I think it would make sense, at least for the time being, since we are still under a lot of restrictions, to uh, because you have the uh, the 14-day quarantine. If uh, uh, regardless, if you travel from anywhere, um, internationally, anyways, or U.S., then you uh, may, might make sense to uh, do the testing. Uh, and apparently now they recommend doing the testing more than once. Uh, uh, as you know, the hockey players that have arrived in Toronto right now, who are the, as you know, the uh, uh, NHL has started um, because the, the players are here. They're actually being tested more than once, uh, and to make sure that they are indeed negative, and that's a, that's important. So I think if you could, if you have a passenger, uh, having them tested on the day they arrive and two days later, perhaps, just to make sure that they are indeed negative uh, before you releasing them into the community. So that, that might make sense. But I don't know if governments have any plans like that, uh, especially if you have the open, uh, the airports are open and you've got thousands of passengers coming every day, it uh, might be rather difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it like in some airports they are trying to do that, but it's maybe an optional process right now. But uh, as we go forward, it might become more mandatory. Um, so we're approaching the end. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, I, I definitely learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience did as well. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you found this discussion informative. To kick off Season 5, the COVID Decoded series hosts sat down for a roundtable reflection on what we learned from this series and the pandemic at large. You can check out episode 80 and the other COVID Decoded streams wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.